0: A common business mistake is like well we can either go for a profit or growth and and he's very wise and he goes well wait why is it an either or why don't i only i only have a certain amount of time in the day so why don't i only do the things that are going to be both be profitable and help me grow because i only have time for three initiatives at any given moment anyway
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Jesse Puggi, is the founder and CEO of Gateway X, a holding company focused on developing direct to consumer companies. He leverages his past experience as the CEO and co founder of Ampush, a performance marketing agency that worked with enormous brands like Uber, Peloton, Hulu, Birchbox, and Dollar Shave Club. In this interview, we talk about the Venture Studio that he's building, some of the lessons that he learned after selling part of the company to Red Ventures about running a successful holding company, and at the end, we hit a ton of other diverse topics. Really fun conversation. Learned a lot from Jesse. Super thankful that he made some time to be on the show. Here is that conversation. You're listening to going deep with Aaron Watson. Jesse, it's nice to be talking to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. I appreciate it. So I thought an interesting place to start would be the the fact that you got your start by being one of the early users, your early uh, folks running Facebook ads. And that was really one of the things that kind of broke your, your business ambush. Today... Uh, maybe you can you can uh, say you don't buy this premise. TikTok ads might potentially represent a similar type of opportunity in that it's a nascent platform, not taken seriously by everyone, but there's a ton of user attention on a platform like that. Through the lens of how you first came to Facebook and learned how to do it efficaciously, what advice would you give to someone in your shoes just getting started in marketing, performance marketing, to potentially approach a platform like TikTok?
0: Yeah, it's a great question and a funny one because at Gateway X right now, we have a huge effort going to figure out TikTok. Um, so, you know, I actually do believe that it's very much the second coming or it's certainly up there. You know, it's hard to know how big any of these things ever will get. But, you know, I, I think the, the biggest, best piece of advice I can give someone similar to Twitter is just just do it. Get engaged into it. Stop worrying about whether you're doing it right. Stop asking people for you know the perfect advice to, that you know. Not to say you shouldn't ask for advice. You can definitely ask people, but a lot of people use that as a way to just not try it and do it and like start making TikToks, start posting things on onto the page, um, and really get to know and get to understand the platform. and And I would light up a marketing campaign as fast as you possibly can for anything. It could be for your local you know, your, your favorite local restaurant or a nonprofit you like, like there's anything you can do to, to get, to start to trying it and doing it. Because like anything, every iteration, you're gonna get 10X better, especially in the beginning. And, and, you know, that would be kind of the approach. I think the other thing I would do is like, build a lot of relationships in and around the platform. That was a big thing for us, including with the platform itself. So people who work at TikTok, you know, TikTok, the, the employees and the culture, is, it's a pretty hungry culture. Uh, and it's a much more commercial culture than facebook was you know when, when we worked with facebook 10 or 11 years ago we used to joke that it was like a nonprofit. like they really did in the early early days pre, pre going public wow. facebook did not care about being about making money it was just not a priority for them um, that changed obviously but so i, w- I would I'd get to know people in and around you know the ecosystem of a, of a company like tiktok and then obviously specific to tiktok just more tactically like the creative and the format of video is so different than anything else that's out there right now that part of just doing it is you're going to really learn what it takes to create and make something like that. And the scale required to do that, which is, you know, I think there's going to be a whole ecosystem of companies built around TikTok. I mean, we, Gateway X is a venture studio, so we're incubating and thinking of ideas all the time. And in the last month is getting to know TikTok. We've had like five specific ideas. Like there should be a, A non-royal, non-licensed, not royalty-free music marketplace. You know, I'm sure there is something like this, but like it's made for TikTok. It's very, the sounds are very specific to TikTok sounds, but it's like super easy to use and just makes it really easy to produce a bunch of these TikToks. Like there's going to be so many ideas ecosystem-wise around, just like there have been around Facebook in the last 10 years.
1: And one thing I've heard you talk about before is this opportunity with Gateway, which is kind of a new endeavor for you, is really a chance to kind of get back to your roots, building new companies, focus on the direct to consumer space, leveraging all of your past experiences in running these performance marketing campaigns. Can you just kind of give us a 360 view of the entity that you're building right now?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, Gateway X is sort of a venture studio, a unique spin on a venture studio, you know, and, and there's kind of a few different p- the threads of fabric kind of, that tie it together. You know, one is the 10 years I spent building and scaling Ampush, where I worked with, you know, tons of direct-to-consumer brands, tons of entrepreneurs, really helping them grow and scale customer acquisition. You uh, know, the other one is like really a, a ton of personal work I've done, and in, in inner work, I'd say, around what I truly love and what sort of you know, what my purpose is, what I want to build, uh, where I get my, my energy from and kind of putting, bringing them together. You know, it's, it's like, I love, I love coaching, teaching, helping other people learn and grow. And that's the thing where I can put my, when I put my energy towards that, I tend to be at my best. And it turns out entrepreneurship is like a great canvas for personal development and growth. You know, you started a business, you know, that, you know, the lessons you're learning, how much you're changing and evolving as a person, and so I was kind of like, where could I, what kind of, what would a business look like where where I that's how I, I help people learn and grow by building businesses, you know, and I also got to do all the fun strategic work of building and scaling businesses. Let me also leverage the knowledge I have from AMPUSH and customer acquisition. And that's kind of what the genesis of Gateway X was or is. Um, and and what we're doing, that's you know, it's a so it's a venture studio. We're launching both uh, direct-to-consumer brands. Which sort of leverages my knowledge of that and customer acquisition then we're also launching what i'll call broadly is like direct-to-consumer enablement companies so both SaaS and services so either software or services that sell to the brands themselves so that's kind of the the mandate we're looking for ideas that are sort of between the the mom and pop and the you know venture scale so part of what we believe is there's a ton of ideas and a ton of room to build profitable five, 10, $20 million EBITDA type businesses, but you can do that over a five or 10 year horizon. You don't have to be a billion dollar unicorn in three years or you're a failure sort of mindset. And then over time, we can kind of amass a portfolio of those that we build and and those that we scale. And so this year, you know, by the end of this year, we'll have launched four companies, two on the brand side, and then two on the enablement side. So the brand, the two brands, one's called Puforia and Puforia is that fun feeling you get after you take a number two. We built that, tried to scale it. I can kind of go into the details. Ultimately, it's sort of on maintenance mode now, like for a variety of reasons. And we're launching a V2 uh, literally next week called Unbloat, which is a much better product, more of a pill, less of a powder. And it's really targeted towards a specific demo of like 40 to 60-year-old women. And we found like a very underserved category there. Um, the, the word bloating is searched as often as the word hair loss. And yet there's like very few products on the market for bloating and a ton, as we all know, for related to hair loss. So we're really excited about that. It launches next week. It's the, the URLs unbloat.me. Um, and then we have two other businesses. One is called growth assistant and growth assistant is a really, you know, kind of a fun idea. It's, it's basically a a place where entrepreneurs can get a trained, you know, support type growth marketer. So someone who can you know, help you set up your campaigns or run the emails or look at your URL codes or format creative. They're not a strategy person and they're in the Philippines and they're $2,500 a month. Um, so it's kind of that entry-level junior marketing person, uh, but offshore, uh, and that business has been growing like gangbusters. And then the fourth one is, is a software business called Kahani and Kahani means story in Hindi. And we're basically building a software where you're E commerce store will have its own stories the way Instagram has stories, and you can tap on them and you can interact with them. And, and they're going to, you know, they're driving up conversion and engagement very meaningfully uh, for the stores we're testing on right now. And we're, I'm like really, really excited. Like, I think we're starting in e commerce, but I think every website could have our product on it, and stories, you know, can be everywhere on the mobile experience.
1: Right on. So we've covered a couple. Entrepreneurs like yours, which is partially a story of having some success and having that compound, but really being in this space where you can not be completely like spread thin to the point that you can't really give the best of yourself to anything, but really travel a couple paths and and kind of leverage the expertise and skill that you've developed to the max um and marshall has who we, we just had on the show like literally also has a company called support shepherd that is a, a similar premise of, of leveraging international talent in order to um you know be able to kind of fulfill some of these needs i'm really curious if you could articulate what you've learned um since launching gateway which is which is once again a relatively new endeavor about managing energy managing focus because despite your experience and the, the ability to, you know, hopefully leverage this in, against this, as many business entities as possible, there's still, you know, skills of delegation, skills of just understanding your own mind so that you're not just kind of jumping from thing to thing, but really putting all your weight behind that which you're focusing on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great question. I mean, you know, the context switching is hard, you know, and and it's like when, I, you know, I remember as through the Ampush experience, helping people level up and, someone who would go from a individual contributor to kind of a half manager to then a full-time executive over five, six years. And the executive switch, everyone would go, wow, the context switching, you know, and even within a company, an executive has to go from motivating their team one minute to fighting with a bill, maybe with a client the next minute to then selling the company in a recruiting meeting. So even the normal job for a single company CEO, that context switching is challenging. and And, you know, in the world I'm living in, it's it's hard. So I, I don't want to make it sound easy, nor do I want to make it sound like I don't, I don't know, This might not work, right? Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing, per se. Like, I I, I don't have a master grandmaster plan um, that I know exactly what's going to happen and what's going to work. Um, but but I think some of the things I try um, that have helped me, uh, you know, one is like really knowing where my strengths are and and where I bring the, you know, bring the value and where I don't. And so, you know, I bring value in some of the like marketing ideas and creativity around that. I bring, bring, bring value in, in problem solving in a resourceful fashion. So, if we can't figure out how to get something done, helping think through how we may get that thing done. I bring value with my network and being able to help solve problems that way. Um, I bring value uh, by being, you know, helping make decisions when people are stuck. Uh, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not a great product manager. Um, you know, I'm not good at, at inventory or logistics. I'm not great at necessarily even keeping trains running on time, like, a, you know, in an operations context. And so those are some of the, you know, hiring great people around me and being very conscious of those things has, has created a lot of, made, made a lot of value, right? And, and, and so I try to only spend my time on the things that I think I'm going to add a lot of value and typically the things that are going to give me energy back that I enjoy doing. Um, because those are kind of where I'm at my best. So that's one big one. You know, there's a ton of tactical stuff. Like I meditate every day or, or almost every day. I also like when I, when I go into meetings, I usually spend the first minute or two with the team getting present in some way. Okay, let's just close our eyes guys. And like, I'm sorry. Like you may not need this, but I need four breaths. Like I need to kind of like forget what I was just doing. And I need to come here and remember, okay, this is, We was just talking about how we're going to run ads on TikTok for this brand And now we're going to talk about this bug that's in our software that we're trying to ship. And it's like, holy shit, these are, they couldn't be more different. Um, And and even the the tool belt I need to pull out. So getting present is a really big one for me. And I, sometimes it's breathing. Sometimes it's like, let's do some jumping jacks, like whatever it is, just to kind of create some switch between the two things that I'm doing. Um, You know, I'm really good at email. You know, that's, it's like, it sounds so stupid, but it's such a big thing. Um, like my inbox ends at zero every single day. And that's just like, it helps me triage everything, you know, what's going on, how's it going on, where, what, what needs my attention, what doesn't need my attention and knowing kind of, you know, again, I don't think I'm great. I think I'm like probably C plus or B minus at it still, but better than a lot of people, which is like knowing when to get deep and when to kind of pull back and let things kind of unfold a little bit and like just getting good at that. Um, do
1: you use superhuman do you batch like what what's your strategy i use superhuman
0: i love superhuman um but i was i've been doing this many many years prior to superhuman existing like there's a if you google there's like some 2013 article that has like i had like seven softwares that were all doing pieces of what superhuman does today and i had like mixed them all up together
1: um so you were like squarely their early days target demo you know
0: because because i you know i never wanted to be the bottleneck for someone to get something done and i also didn't want to like you know, I always tell early, again, new leaders, like, man, there's money in your inbox. You know, like it's so the idea that you haven't seen the email yet. And, and I think part of part of my method and my approach is I, I want to see everything. Once I've seen everything, then I can triage and manage how I want to do it. That doesn't mean I, I do everything in that moment, but I want to see everything. Um, so I, you know, probably two or three times a day, I triage
1: down to zero. Yeah. Well, there's um, a, a book called Frenemies that was about some of the like biggest agencies in the entire world and i'm blanking on which specific character it was but just an anecdote that always stuck with me was that the the head of it was notorious for always replying like people would email him at eight and like they'd hear back promptly you know and whenever the thing may be and you know one one interpretation of that which is completely valid is i don't want to live like that that ain't for me but the other you know notion of like how plugged in someone who built one of the biggest agencies in the world had to be in order to reach that level. I'm sure he found all sorts of money in his inbox super promptly before other people. And, you know, you kind of have that, that similar background. And I also want to push back, you know, I, I appreciate the humility. I don't know if the, you know, this gateway X thing is going to work yet. Um, but the, but you have a framework um, or at least I would say probably some mentors and other kind of models that you could pull from, which is- sure. Uh, your past company, Ampush, that you built, sold to a company called Red Ventures, which mm-hmm. is another kind of holding company that's figured out how to, you know, do the culture and the spin-out and the acquisition thing really effectively. Um, and, and they're a company that you know most most people have actually probably come into contact with w- without knowing it, right? Between right, right. CNET and the point sky and lonely planet and all these other entities that they own. So can you just talk a little bit about? What you've taken from them, particularly as a holding company that can accomplish such growth and scale, um, kind of behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, you know, they they bought a minority interest in Ampush actually. They didn't acquire the whole company. Um, they're amazing partners, and and you know, part of the reason I think I've gotten more humble is meeting them. <laughs> like I. You know, I like when I was 30 years old and Ampush was only had only grown and scaled. I was like, Yeah, I'm I'm a like eight out of 10, nine out of 10 entrepreneur. And then I met these guys and Rick in particular, their founder and CEO, who's, who's a dear friend and mentor to me. And I was like, Holy shit, I'm like a four out of 10. Like this guy, this guy's playing six dimensional chess in in five minutes and it's something that would take me a day, you know, like and, and so that's kind of important, right? It's like constantly seeing that there's levels to it, not not to psych yourself out or to make yourself feel less than, but to actually just like keep, keep yourself hum- humble and also keep learning. Um, and so, yeah, like, man, there's so many things I could tell you about how amazing there is. But I think the, some of the things, you know, they have a very singular culture. Um, and, and, you know, all the great companies do. McKinsey does, Facebook does. And, and what that means is not, you know, it's, it's not a certain type of person. There's all kinds of different people there, but there are certain things that really come to the top. In their business right so you know in their case they're they're very action oriented they're very focused on the bottom line not the top line um they're really str- like quantitatively rigorous and, and re- oriented around numbers everything's oriented around numbers and they're really nimble with how they move people around and and they move anything around like they have rick has one of his one of his many beliefs is everything's written in pencil you know and it's like anything can be erased anything can be changed and, and he, you know there's one thing to say that he lives that i mean they they would acquire businesses and and re you know, restaff hundred people from one project going on in their company overnight to another to another business, and you know if, if any if you or me tried to do that it would not work because yeah. because you have to have people and a culture and an orientation that has that level of nimbleness in them, um, and so they've really just built that as a as a you know a very they're very decisive um, at every level. Um, and you know, they, they also, they're really big on this. I think there's companies like Disney and others who are really big, like their executives do not manage people or like, you know, not to say that they're, they're very compassionate and great about people and culture in that sense, but they don't manage people. They don't like, if you think about the traditional executive, it's like, I'm the VP of this group. I have my five directors and each director does X, Y, and Z there. And from top to bottom from Rick, all the way to the most junior person, everybody manages the business. And what I mean by that is the metrics, the numbers, what drives uh, outcome, what, what's gonna make it grow and scale. And so if you talk to a very senior executive at Red Ventures, they would know the click-through rates of their business. They would know how much one click-through rate needs to improve for you know, get, uh, their Facebook channel or something like that for X, Y, and Z to happen. They'd probably know the top creative in a campaign and they might be running a nine-figure EBITDA business right? So they're huge businesses. And that's how dialed in from top to bottom, everybody is in the business. Um, And that's a really unique, so it's not that they, you know, they're not always operating there, but they can go down to the bone whenever they need to go to the bone. It reminded me of like, I give you a specific anecdote, unrelated. I met the the president of Disney plus a couple of years ago and the guy, Kevin Meyer or no, it's uh, Michael Paul. And, and, you know, the guy manages 1,300 people, this huge operations a few years ago. And, and he like had a very in-depth, toe-to-toe conversation with me about Facebook attribution. And I was pretty blown away, right? Because here I am, I'm like I, this is like, I spent a lot of time talking and thinking about this. And This is like one tiny part of this huge business, but it was just showed the level of depth that he was able to operate at when he needed to.
1: That's awesome. Um, so one of my things I always love with podcasts or I is a pet peeve that we're not going to fall for here is when someone says, Oh, I could go on and on and on with lessons. You did a great job there, but I want to just push a little bit more on, on the lessons from red ventures and you watch this show succession. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the reason people like a show like that is because they feel like they're getting a little bit of the taste of the quote unquote, six dimensional chess that one plays at those high level executive levels, you don't have to refer it to succession necessarily. But when you say that, you know, this executive completely gets it in five minutes, what would take you a day to understand, like, can you, can you just make that a little bit more legible for people who might aspire to be able to process things that way, but don't necessarily have a, a tangible example outside of a show like that on HBO?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know exactly how he does it. Cause if he, if I did, I would do it too. And I'm not there yet. I, you know, the, I'll give you an example of, of a common, uh, I'll give you a really cool example, actually. So at Red Ventures, somewhat organically, there's this thing. They they're, they're pretty famous for called business reviews and every company does business reviews, but theirs are a little bit different. They're no longer than 15 minutes long. They're less than three slides. So you bring in more than three slides. Someone's going to talk to you. Wow. And and they will sit down for a day, and they will have sixteen business reviews, or no, not even more than that, twenty business reviews. So you walk in, and it started by obviously just meeting with Rick and the management team, and maybe a VP level or director level coming. Hey, here's what I'm planning on doing. Here's what I think we can grow. And then Rick had this idea. He said, "You know what? Like, why don't we show the whole company how we make decisions?" So then he just made this a completely public meeting, and so now it's like it's like a 500 person meeting. It happens once every, you know, four to six months, depending on the cadence of their business, and, you know, you 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 come in and, and you basically in within 15 minutes you'll bring your top problems. What's going to generate the most incremental dollars in terms of EBITDA or profit? And you'll you'll square off, you know, and have a conversation with Rick about it and and really, Rick and the team. And and hey, I I don't think this is a good idea. Like, I think you're missing something. I think you need like give that CEO a call and really talk through these different issues with them, or the pricing model that you're leveraging on healthline.com. I think you're missing that we could be charging more based on lifetime value, not based on CPA. And that's the, I mean, that they're they're really deep and but they're very fast and very decisive, and they walk away with clear decision making. So that's like an artifact. Now I saw that, you know, and I'm a young eager CEO. This was maybe. When they first invested four or five years ago. And I go, we're gonna do business reviews also, of course, right? Like, and it turns out you can't microwave that kind of thing. Like I, I tried it, I said, okay, three months, guys. I want you all to walk in and you have 15 minutes. And and you know, my team gave an amazing effort, but you know, they didn't know what issues mattered. And I realized I didn't know certain things about the about their their different client situations or different parts of the business that what was driving what. And it ended up becoming kind of like a dog and pony, sort of like, we didn't actually make any real decisions in the meeting. Cause I, like I wasn't up to speed enough or they, they, they brought up three issues. I go, those are just really important ones. What about the fact that the client, you know, the new CMO in, in place. And so it, you know, we, and we tried it probably for two years straight and, and eventually we, you know, it still exists, but we pared it down pretty dramatically and we focused a little bit more on learning, but it just wasn't, it's just a great example of something that, man, you see that that's culture. Like we tried to, we literally, I got to attend them at Red Ventures. I was there. Like, so I got full access to them. I got to see what they were like and and I tried to replicate them in my own organization and I wasn't successful. So that's like, that's culture, right? That's something you can't just microwave from someone. Um, But it's a really cool example of, of the dynamicism that exists there.
1: Absolutely. Um, And and it seems like that would just be such a powerful tool for, almost implicitly like training up your team because if they're watching all these different pitches and they're getting, like, I always think about it, my mental reps, right. You know, when, when I'm on the field near, I used to play ultimate Frisbee when I'm on the field with like the very best throwers who just see the field differently you start to see the field in a different way and, you know, maybe not every person in their 500 person organization can, you know, make every single decision, obviously not, but they start to at least kind of comprehend the bigger picture outside of their maybe small domain that they're working in.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and like Rick has a, you know, one of his, again, many beliefs, like, you know, he, he wants everything that he's going to underwrite or take on to be a three Right. And so it's like, and one of you know, behind that is like a common business mistake is like, well, we can either go for a profit or growth. And, and he's very wise and he goes, well, wait, why is it an either or? Why don't I only, I only have a certain amount of time in the day. So why don't I only do the things that are going to be both be profitable and help me grow? Because I only have time for three initiatives at any given moment anyway. But then his three for thing is a double, is even more of that, which is anything he takes on, he wants it to have like three, three sort of value adds, right? So in this case, it's like, he learns more about his own business units and what's going on he gets to you know make decisions with his executives in a very fast and then people get to learn and see how the whole group thinks about things and how they think about business. So that's like a, it's a cool example of a three for those business reviews they do. Right on. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co.
1: Well, you said earlier in that, that, um, you you know, you, you were humbled, you were 30 years old or so thinking you're pretty hot stuff because of the success that you'd accomplished. And um, when I was prepping for this interview, I was talking with my wife about how around 2015, 2016, you guys managed. $350 million worth of ad spend, uh, which I I can understand why one would think that they were pretty hot stuff after, you know, building a business to that degree of scale and working with companies like Dollar Shave Club, Peloton, Uber, Hulu, Birchbox, what have you. can you tell me? I think her actual exact words were, "I'm sweating just thinking about that." Um, so, so tell tell me about the process of, you know, when you were sweating that stuff, and then what it took to not necessarily be sweating when you saw that amount of number running through your business.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, the the it's a good question. Like, it, I was definitely it was probably more than 350, by the way. But I was I was a I was like definitely the frog in boiling water. Um, so I didn't, I don't ever remember waking. I do remember there was a couple moments I remember with my co-founder, Nick, we'd look at, we looked at when payroll and at one point payroll hit a million and a half dollars. And we said, Holy shit, that's a lot of money to be paying in payroll. Right. Like, so I do remember there were certain moments like that, that were the kind of s- sweaty moments, but in general, the spend, it never, you know, it started at zero. Obviously we had two or three clients, those clients grew to 10 million in spend. And, and then we added more and then, you know, it, and I'd say like, I'll tell you what I th- where I think we got lucky and obviously I'll tell you where I think what we did really well, you know, where, where we got lucky was like, well, what we did well was we put ourselves in the game and that's really important for every entrepreneur, got to get in the game, right? Because I was working at Goldman Sachs and I remember very specifically telling my, my co-founders, we're never going to come up with the next great idea sitting, working at our desks here. We're just too far from what's happening. So let's go get in the game. So we got in the game. We were not doing Facebook marketing to start. We were doing random affiliate search marketing stuff that we had no idea what we were doing. And we were in the right place. Therefore, because of that decision, what, where we got lucky was Facebook, it launched. And we were like, there, ready to pounce on it. Right. And that was kind of a lucky stroke. And then kind of the second or third lucky thing was, you know, we, the fact that Uber did business with us or Dollar Shave Club did business or Supercell was not because we were anything special. It was because there was like four companies who knew how to do Facebook ads. We were one of them, and and so they talked to us, right? And and we you know we sold them and all that stuff. What we did really well was we were really good at hiring bright people and investing in training them. And and so so what happened was once Uber did start working with us, they go, wow, these people are, these, we would like to hire these people. They're really smart people and they're doing a great job with campaign management and communication. And so we actually got just really good at scaling by hiring people who had no background in marketing or advertising and training them in how to do that. That was the thing that we did really well that allowed us to continue with these mega companies and help them scale and grow their customer acquisition.
1: And, and from a decision-making framework, from the standpoint of these clients, I think that something so someone who's in a kind of more novice position would say to themselves, well uber raised all that money or peloton saw their you know market cap skyrocket so they can you know issue all sorts of equity grants to potential people that they could bring in house what is it that as a as a service provider keeps you Relevant is it as simple as like, hey, when they spend money with us, they end up making more money. Or like, are there other elements that you've learned from like a from being a client service provider that keeps you relevant to these companies as they go from you know seedling series A to some of the Goliaths of our modern economy?
0: Yeah. I mean, well, but some of it is is honestly like Ampush has gotten really good at particularly supporting the S curve. And then oftentimes when they do exit or they're gonna exit, they'll take it in-house or they'll change the way they're approaching it. So it's not that you know, I think we fought that for a long time, and we did come up with a bunch of ways that have worked, many of them to making us stickier and better. But a lot of it was also just realizing that, you know, there are there's a natural cadence to some of those things that that you have to sort of be okay with and be prepared for. I think the biggest thing, you know, by far is performance, you know, and and related to that is growth, like good 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 economics and growth. And it's like if you can keep delivering more and more results, like anything, no one is gonna. No one's gonna press on that or push on that, right? I think the second one is, you know, relationships, which is like if you know the right like Uber's a great example where you know we scaled all of Uber's driver acquisition in North America. And then they go, okay, you know, we've worked for you guys for three years, we're gonna take that in-house. Like that's a natural part of our evolution. And they said, but we're gonna give you guys international. And international is three times the size of, of US, right? And it was like, well, we had relationships, right? Like and and we we like that was a way that we could actually scale the business because even though literally North America was going in house, like we were getting international and that was plenty for us to eat and, and spend time building. And, and I think the third one that, that's probably the most interesting for a service provider is data and insights. You know, that's the one thing we do have that, that no individual client will ever have, which is we can share what's happening across the board. What are different areas that are popping up? Why, why are we staying closer to the problem than they are? innovating new channels like TikTok, just to, be, because we have that market knowledge and Intel, that's a, a really powerful thing.
1: Right on. All right. I've got five relatively quick hits here. Uh, and then we'll aim towards asking our, our standard last questions. These are um, probably the most selfish ones. I'm, not, I'm I, The whole thing selfish because I get to talk to smart people. Same thing. Like, like uh, you say, you like being around uh, other people that are operating at a higher level. Um, Puforia and the pivot to unbloat. Can you just take us through because, you know, it's always, Hey, we accomplished this. We knocked this out of the park, whatever. Um, you were very candid already with one of the failures in terms of getting that, um, like 15 minute presentation thing implemented in your company, but the original idea wasn't quite landing. Can you just take us through like the, Hey, you know, you just need to stick it out versus we kind of need to pivot. We kind of need to let, you know, release that tight grip on the idea that we had so that we can go grab a better idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a tough one. You know, it, the, the, what was, what went well about it was it, it, again, it got me in the game and it, it I, I had never built a brand. So I wanted to do the things that I wanted to get a Shopify site up and I wanted to get inventory and I wanted to get a 3PL. Obviously I knew the growth part really well, but I didn't know all those other pieces of it. And that, in that sense was super helpful. It sort of taught me the limits of performance marketing. Cause I was literally like, man, with a good, you know, funny brand name and some click clicky ads You know, we're going to charge a premium to these relatively commoditized supplements. And like, it didn't work. Our conversion rate almost never got beyond one and a half percent. And so, you know, I I think the decision was a a fewfold. Um, You know, we learned a lot about our customers through the process of launching Puforia. And and we realized that the brand name and the brand was not appealing to them. It was like me being silly and and thinking that could be funny, but it turns out 75% of our customers were women and women were the most interested in things that helped their digestive tract. men were not all that interested and so we're like well this name just didn't appeal to women even though a lot of women would come to it and that was kind of the customer thing so that was a good learning one of the skews we had was a fiber product and it was expensive to ship it was like our margins were lower and retention and returns were horrendous like 10 percent return rate retention would fall off after three or four months and 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 meanwhile, when people bought just our probiotic, which was like our afterthought product, retention was amazing. Nobody ever complained about it, and the economics were better. So we we're like, oh, that's interesting. And then I think the third one was like, we got really specific about a customer and a pain point in a way that Poophoria was just like, everyone poops, everyone can poop better. Like it just it was very soft when it came to it. whereas what we heard this code word from women, which is like, I don't like the word poop. Like, I, well, how do I think about it? well, bloated? I don't like being bloating, I don't like you know, that's like not a happy feeling. And there's a lot of emotional and sort of physical things tied to that, that feeling. And it was funny because this really came bottom up from, from running it. And then we validated top down by going, wait, tons of people are searching this term. This seems like, a, you know, there's one third of women have it. Like there's, there's something to this. Um, and then we realized that there was an opportunity with our, you know, our, our manufacturer to build a product that nobody else had on the market. And, and our product specifically was like a probiotic, but it included, special, all the like special digestive enzymes. Like, you know, you have lactose intolerance but you'll have other intolerances, a bunch of natural stuff, magnesium. So we were able to put together a product that wasn't there. And so I think it was like a, a bunch of, it was the economics, it was the marketing, the brand name it was who we went after specifically. And then it was like improving the product. And so I think it was all those things kind of. So I think when there was enough things wrong that let us quit versus keep going. To kind of answer your bottom line, your, your answer, right? Like we, we pushed we push for like four or five months we tried a lot of different Hail Marys, a lot of big swings. We could not move the conversion rate despite everything I know. And I've seen, I've doubled and tripled conversion rates for clients. So I've seen a lot of that. And at some point you got to go, it's something very fundamental to this. It's the brand, it's the product, some you know combination thereof. And if we're going to iterate the product, let's just the brand's not that hard to iterate. Let's just iterate the whole brand.
1: Well, that's, I'm sure it wasn't cheap, but that is a really helpful kind of framework for how to troubleshoot something like that. Um, the, the next thing I wanted to ask about was you've really, um, started hitting, hitting the Twitter threads hard. Um, and I think it's, it's been working for you. So just in terms of, um, what you've learned in terms of, uh, writing Twitter threads with consistency, getting them to be, you know, shared engagement, whatever. Um, I, have seen the Pomplianos bro- blow up with them and uh, you seem to be in a similar type of, uh, trajectory.
0: Yeah. I just copied what they did, honestly. <laughs> No, you know, I I think, I think a couple learnings on Twitter, I'd say the first one is I would not start by writing threads. That's like one of the first things I tell people, it's a little bit of the tree falling in the forest thing. You know, like if you have 200 followers or even a thousand followers and you start writing threads, it's just a, there's no one there to hear, you know, the tree fall sort of thing. And so I advise people, you know, really build up yourself to probably two to 3000 by, you know, engaging with the community, like you see a cool thread, you, t- you see someone saying something about something you know about, like, this is how I started. I was like, well, like, here's a, here's an example of a data point. We found that that's contrary to what you're saying, or here's something that we also learned that I would add to this, like open up DMs, start DMing people, like really get to be part of that community so that there's a bunch of people who, who, who are following you because they've, they've seen you, seen, seen you say smart things and like what you're talking about. Then I would try a couple single tweet type things just to say like do my ideas stick. Um, and then I would probably start writing threads. And I would obviously, you know, the way I did it was most of my threads to start were all just very personal. Here's the story of how Ampush almost failed in the beginning. Here's the story of an MA situation we were in. Um, and I, you know, I, I, in order to do that, I sort of followed what I saw other people's formats and what they were doing. Like I didn't reinvent the wheel there. Obviously there's some art to writing something that's kind of gets, gets people emotional and gets the, curiosity. And, and that's a real, a real art.
1: But those principles um, of copywriting were probably also what you were using with some of these Facebook ads, right? Like it's not that yeah, different yeah. in terms of stimulating action, stimulating interest, Yeah, get
0: attention, generate curiosity. You know, there's the influence principles, social proof shield on like there, there's some, and maybe it's so innate. I don't even realize, but it's like, yeah, I, the one of the first threads I wrote was like, setting up the situation for the beginning of ambush and like we almost failed or we had failed we thought we we were over and then everyone goes oh my god I want to read this right and they want to get into it or like you know one of the other first ones was like the biggest mistake I see people make is x I'm going to unpack it now and you're you know people are get curious about it so I think those things matter and then you know the, the thing I do every week now is I write a bootstrap giant and it's probably one of the more fun things because I love learning about these stories like I love you know, we have one coming out tomorrow. That's like such a cool story. It's so inspiring for me. It's so energizing for me. And, and then, you know, when I write it, people love them and, and it was, everyone goes, Oh, it's such a good idea. And I was like, did you like, where'd you come up with that? And it's so funny. Cause I'm like, I knew I liked those stories. Like I love how I built this. I particularly love when it's bootstrapped because I feel like they're just, it's got a certain richness texture to it. And, but mm-hmm. the first one I started, I was like, I love these stories. Let me just write one and see what happens. And the first one I wrote, it was insane. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try another one. Like, and, and so that it, I did not have a master plan of like starting to write those. It just sort of it came through me in a way.
1: Well, that perfectly leads into my third of the, the last five here, which is, in my opinion, the most intriguing of the threads that you've written, uh, because I have a four-month-old daughter and I am not getting enough sleep. So for the good people listening and selfishly for me, can you talk about teaching children to sleep when they're very young?
0: (laughs) Have you read the thread? I have. Okay. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I mean, so, so I've had this conversation a lot, you know, uh, when you talk to new parents and, and what I observed in the world when I talked to parents was how's being a parent, and the degree to which they said most amazing thing in my life versus whoo, you know, no parent says it sucks, but they'll say, this is really tough. Of course it's worth it, but it's tough. And I'm not really, you know, and I miss my old life. And like, there's this big variance in, in people's response. And there were basically three variables I, I noted that I thought correlated strongly with that. The first one was baby. Does your, does your kid sleep? Which means, do you sleep? The most important one, I think. The second one was, do you have some sense, some form of, of ample childcare? your parents live nearby, you have a babysitter, I'll pair, whatever. And the third one was like alignment with your spouse. You know, what do you do when X happens? How in sync are you two uh, working together? So I won't talk about number two, number three, but number one was like, everyone's like, well, no, there's two ways to make a baby sleep. One way is, is you wait till they're five or six months old or four months old, you leave them all night to cry and they'll learn. And, and I said, (laughs) Oh my gosh, people do that. I could never do that. You know, my wife could never do that. So that was not going to work for us. The other one I heard was you coddle them because eventually they'll grow up and they'll sleep on their own. And, you know, we were both like, uh, uh-uh, that, that's also like not coddle, meaning they sleep in your bed. If they need anything, you grab them, so on and so forth. And so me being an entrepreneur and, and somewhat defiant, I go, that can't be true. Like, I don't believe it. I just don't believe that's true. And so I went on this whole journey trying to disprove that those are the only two ways. And it turns out there is a, a third way and I'm not the inventor of it. Or like, I just, I read a bunch of books and discovered and sort of synthesized what the I think the major parts of it are. So what those parts are, the first one that's the most non-intuitive is this concept of awake time. And so I'll have parents like you who have a four month old who go, Jesse, my kid's not sleeping. And my wife and I will immediately start asking them about their the nap schedule. Why ask me about the nap schedule? Show me a baby's not sleeping. me I go. Oh, the first thing you have to pay attention to is How long is your newborn awake uh, and in between their sleep periods? And and the reason that's important is, and and the the, the heuristic, by the way, is 60 minutes of, of awake time when you're born and it grows by 15 minutes for every month they're alive. So your baby shouldn't be awake for more than two hours. That's the bookends at any given moment. And the reason is because, you know, whenever you've done an all nighter, You've done all nighters, I assume I've done all nighters. Like, there's that like 2 a.m. second wind you get. And you're like, you were tired, and all of a sudden you're like, nah, I'm ready. Let's go another few hours, right? And that's actually your body. Your body's like, oh my God, this person's still awake. They shouldn't be awake. They must be in a fight or flight situation. Let me give them adrenaline. So your body just releases adrenaline to your body. That happens to a newborn at like 65 minutes of awake. And so a baby will be awake and they'll, they'll look sleepy for a second. Then they'll like, look all giddy and happy. And it actually turns out they're getting adrenaline in their body, which makes them harder to put to sleep, which means they sleep less. And that compounds in a really negative way. And so the best advice, like, it's like, like we would be super anal about it's like 45 minutes, put the kid back to sleep. And my parents thought I was nuts until they were like, Oh my God, you're six month old. You know, we went on a cross cross world flight to Australia and my son slept through the whole flight. My parents were like, what kind of voodoo, you know, are you guys doing? And so. Um, that's uh, a time is f- by far the number one. The second one is like all the five S's, which I'm sure, you know, it's just like, there, there's this whole book called happiest baby on the block. The biggest of the five S's there, my kids are six and four now they're like, uh, swing suck, which is the pacifier, uh, shush, which is the most important one. What's the blanket thing called? Swaddle. Swaddle. Thank you. Swaddle. And then something else. I can't remember. But the shushing, like it's apparently in the womb, it's the sound of a vacuum cleaner. That's how loud it is in the womb for the baby. So they're like any kind of like hair dryer noise or rain sound, the hair dryer noise is the best for a newborn, really loud. And then there's a bunch of other things like routines, getting them into a like it's funny by the way, because I have friends who didn't follow any of this and they have five year olds and they're still having trouble getting their five-year-olds to go to bed at night and to stay to bed at night. And my wife, like we look, like, our kids even to this day at 8 8:30 eight, eight, they are in bed and they're ready to go that's just a routine that they're used to um, so I could go on forever and ever but there, there's a bunch of other pieces to the baby sleep stuff
1: right on we'll link happiest baby on the block and, and that list there but I can tell you that that has been uh, shared between me and my wife and we are in the earliest stages of, of trying to implement that successfully because you said in, in the first couple of months there's not a ton you can do yeah it's, not it's, it's chaos
0: first couple months or whatever. But I think once where you guys are at now is a good time to like get the dream feed, maybe cut the night feed out, see how the baby responds. If, if, if he or she is sleeping more than two or three hour stretches.
1: Yeah. I uh, I
0: guess the other thing I'll mention about that, just on that is like, there's another like non-intuitive thing, which is nobody sleeps through the night. So like even adults, we wake up every 90 minutes, babies wake up every 45 minutes. And so you're not actually teaching them to, Sleep all night. You're teaching them to go back to sleep once they've woken up. Mm -hmm. And once they prove they can do that, even for a two hour, three hour stretch, because they wake up every 45 minutes, then you can, if you remove some of the feeds and stuff, you can usually get them to sleep through the night.
1: One of the things that's interesting is the the REM cycle is different. The the adults have like a four stage REM cycle. And when we're in like REM, which is when the, the hardcore stuff, that's when we're completely still. And for babies, it's the opposite. They move during REM and they're kind of still during the other part. And so when we were novices, we didn't know what we were doing. We'd see the baby move, it's like, oh, she must, you know, need us. And it's actually, no, 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 no. that is the time to like let her kind of work it through. So um, great, great thread. Another question here, I'm, I'm starting to run out of time. So I'm, I'm just gonna ask one more last one, and then we'll, we'll aim our, 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 ask our final questions. I came across you by hearing you on the Invest Like the Best podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. It is the only, and I've listened to every single episode of that show, is the only episode that I've listened to um, more than twice just because of the density of information there. So we're going to link that as well for people that want even more insights from Jesse. But now that you guys are in business together, you're building uh, Join Colossus and doing these business breakdowns as another fantastic show uh, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would enjoy, what have you learned from working with Patrick about he how he approaches the world, his approach to business building and finance and investing and all that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, a ton of stuff. Patrick is a great guy. I mean, I think that's in and of itself an interesting learning. He's a he's a very kind person. He's calm. He's thoughtful. He's just not in my opinion, he's not the typical like bro tech entrepreneur who's like, oh, you know, I'm going to pound three Red Bull. Like he's the opposite of that. And I, you know, I, I love that about him. You know, there's a few things like he, he's, he's really big on a very open calendar and open kind of exploration. And I think I tended to be, you know, I've gotten better at it, but I tended to be a pretty calendared person and I'm not, I'm not a super organized person, but I like, I tended to just use my calendar and he's really good at like leaving days open. And I thought that's like a really, you know, interesting thing. Um, he's really good at asking questions. And again, I would say my default prior to that was being more of the, you know, I was like a a, a nationals and debate and public ice. I'm I'm used to talking and saying things and it was really cool to, to learn kind of the art of being a listener and asking questions. uh, And I still am really working on that. He's really, you know, I think, again, a person I look up to in terms of he's, he's figured out how to spread himself across a few things and do a great job of that um, and, and show up for the things that he's able to show up for and bring a lot of value to. So that's really another thing I've learned from him.
1: Yeah. Right on. I mean, it's literally, people always ask me what my favorite show is and invest like the best. Now Business Breakdowns has kind of joined that category, but it's just unfair yeah. that like that's now free and every other previous generation had to like, I don't even know if you'd get that at, at an MBA. It's it's like even surpassed totally. that in my opinion. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic, Jesse. I know that we've taken a lot of your time here. I want to ask the standard last two questions. Uh, let's start off with where people can find you in the digital world if they want to learn more about Gateway. Gateway. Uh, follow you, you on Twitter. Where can we point them?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Twitter JSPuji, P like Peter, U, J J I. Uh, and then gateway.xyz is the website for Gateway X.
1: Perfect. We're gonna link that in the show notes. We're also gonna link uh all the other accounts that might be relevant and some of the books and stuff that we referenced in the show notes for this episode. You can find it at Going slash podcast or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before I let you go, Jesse, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience.
0: Yeah, sure. I could go a lot of different directions with this, but I think what I would challenge everyone to do is just remove the bottom five items on your to-do list. Like whatever's on your to-do list right now, pull it out and just like, I'm not going to do these this week or next week. And instead, I'm gonna I'm not going to guilt myself. I'm going to focus on these top three or five that I actually have to focus on. And I'm going to do a better
1: job of those. I, uh, I'm definitely guilty of failing to do that, but it's funny how, when you remove the kind of BS, like seven out of 10 tasks, you get a whole lot better at the top ones. Totally. Amen. Awesome. Jesse, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show.
0: Great job. Great having, great being here. Aaron. Thank you.
1: <laughs> we just went deep with Jesse Poogee. Hope out not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Jesse Puji. Just two months ago, we interviewed Marshall Haas, who is also developing his own Holding company. I think that this is uh, pretty much the ideal of what most entrepreneurs are aspiring to all sorts of different outlets for their creativity, diversified revenue, income, and profits, and a ton of fun to continue building stuff. So, we're going to continue to look for entrepreneurs like these two gentlemen. Uh, If you haven't heard the Marshall interview, go check that out and hit subscribe because we'll be talking to more soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.